Chelsea Fairless, and we're back, bitch. I mean, you were always here, and technically I was always here, but I was somewhere else mentally. We were not together. So it's good to see you. Your movie's wrapped. Congratulations. Thank you. I've almost deleted it from my memory. Like, I almost forgot that a week ago today I was on set shooting a movie. It's quite like childbirth, I imagine, of just like, you know what? They have to sew your asshole and your vagina back together (laughs) afterwards. Yeah, that's why I needed a couple days off before we came back to recording. I think in it, I was like, this is the worst experience of my life. (laughs) Really? Kind of. And now that it's over and I've had a few days, I'm like, you know, it wasn't wasn't that bad. I'd go back. (laughs) But it's been nice getting back to life and doing things. As you can see, I have a gigantic box of clothing returns that I need to make afterwards. Oh yeah, I have a Skims return that's been haunting my ass for weeks now. (laughs) You know? You know when you procrastinated a return long enough, even though you know you're getting dangerously close to the 30-day zone, it just becomes like this like monumental task. Oh, my heroine is like going online and saying I'm going to return it, but then like weeks later, I have not actually delivered that return to the post office. Right. You're better than me but on an unrelated note you have some personal news that you would like to share with us don't you would i like to share this (laughs) you can't fucking wait so i was getting back to life i went to heath ceramics over the weekend to get some bowls and um wouldn't you know it a fuck at work there and did you get a discount i didn't that's lauren's big news (laughs) She's like, I get 25% off at Heath Ceramics. And I'd like to share the code with you. No, there was a fuckette there who listened to the podcast. And in that moment, I realized that we share so much of our lives on this podcast. People know I was making a movie. People know that Tout was at the coronation styling Katie. But in that moment, I realized there was a bit of a disconnect because I was there with my boyfriend. (laughs) Sorry, that's my slow clap. Obviously, this isn't news to me. I know your boyfriend. Also, he has a name. It's Paul. It's Luke. (laughs) (laughs) That would be crazy. Yes, fuckheads, I'm in a relationship. You're in love. But also, like, who bagged you this man? (laughs) Was it you or was it me? This is why you really want to talk about it. Because if it were not for Chelsea, I would have never met Paul because... In 2016... (laughs) Instagram had just like launched their sort of integrated analytics. So we found out that 7% of our audience was men. So I did a post like, hey, are any of you guys not gay? Because maybe you could meet like a girl in the comments section. And wouldn't you know, Paul commented, I'm a straight man. I've seen every Sex in the City episode at least twice. I identify as a Steve Aiden hybrid with hairy tendencies. I'd like to hear your take on Casual Big and his flowy shirts and maybe how both Justin Thoreau characters were low-key timeless style icons. And six years later, we ended up together. (laughs) It's incredible. Not you fucking our fans. (laughs) 
Look, I can't say I've never, but you know. Yeah, there's a longer story that maybe should be hidden behind a paywall. But suffice to say, I'm very happy. I'm also realizing that we have not actually done any posts about what Paul asked for. We've not discussed the casual big in his flowy shirts or how Justin Theroux's character was a low-key timeless style icon. We did discuss the flowy shirt. And by the flowy shirt, I think he's referring to the episode where Pete gets lost. Should we ask him? Because also, guys, we live together. We've gone at the pace of lesbian. It's so lesbian. It's crazy. Also, I've come to learn that Paul and I have some really weird shit in common. For one thing, we lived across the street from each other in Bushwick four years. Like, he was 175 and I was 190 kind of shit. Way to dox yourselves. I mean, neither of you live on that block anymore, but... True. And we both have the same birthday, which is September 13th. And as you'll recall, my wife's birthday is September 14th. So what about Lauren (laughs) is so deeply attracted to people with this astrological background? The answer is I was just looking for the straight male version of you. And that's why it took me so long to find love. And you found him. Well, you're also forgetting the last thing you share in common, which is your dads are the same age. Yes, and both of them have been married three times. You have old man dads. Yeah, we do. Anyway, love Paul. Couldn't love Paul more, which is a godsend, because this could have really, not to make it about me, but this could have <laughs> really gone the other way. There could be some weird man lurking around the house and like fucking up the vibes. Yeah, when you first met, I was like, God, I hope they have something that they can talk about. And then within 10 seconds, Tat was like, he's so hot. Like, she just pulled me aside. Oh, I could talk to him without you. We have several group threads going. There's one group thread that is Tat, you, Paul, and I. Then there's one that just Paul, you, and I, which is mostly about, like, Marianne Williamson Yeah, I was about to say, that's only about Marianne Williamson. Paul is a fan, as am I. I did also send you that tweet that was about how there's not enough lesbian straight male friendship representation. Yeah, there isn't, really, in culture. I'm trying to think. Because that is a thing, obviously. Also, now I just remember that I need to get a Marianne Williamson yard sign mailed to your house. Oh, that's right. That was the discussion in the thread. <laughs> anyway, I'm so happy for you. Like, this is the most perfect, beautiful thing ever. I love your guys' relationship. And it's so great getting to know Paul. And hallelujah. Trust me, I feel like Andy Dufresne having escaped Shawshank after 25 years. <laughs> of swimming through metaphorical shit. Yeah, of, uh, yeah emotionally unavailable men. <laughs> yeah, with a bag with some important documents and deeds. <laughs> rubber banded to your ankle i'm not going back to shawshank that's all i could say i do remember seeing a dm or a, uh maybe it was a call of someone right as we started to date where it was like i would love to hear more about like lauren's dating stories and i was like no more <laughs> bless is it time to talk about the new and just like that ad campaign which came out yesterday <sighs> Why The Last Supper? I know. I'm like, is this the last season? This is giving like the last season of The Sopranos or like Six Feet Under or something. I was just thinking, I'm like, I know there have been TV shows and or movies that have used The Last Supper painting as an ad campaign, but I can't think of what. But if anything, it would have been the last season of The Sopranos. Wouldn't it be great if this was predictive of the plot and one of these characters is going to majorly betray Carrie? by the end of the season. So the biggest takeaway that I noticed from this poster that everyone was commenting is, is Che Judas? (laughs) 
Like, what is happening? Che is in the Judas zone, if you are going to compare it to the painting. Although there's roughly the same amount of people, but they didn't literally mimic the poses. Thank God. (laughs) There are so many aspects of it that are the same. I love in The Last Supper how you can see like Jesus's little flip flops or little leather sandals or whatever, like peeking out. And then in this ad, you can see like SJP's little like Valentino pump or whatever. Well, what I like about this is there is the poster and then there is an abridged Instagram friendly square poster that actually puts all the main women together. Look, I think it works. I think it's representative of what this show is. But I also like to think about the creative director conceptualizing this and thinking like, imagine The Last Supper, but with that SJPX wall shop carnation wallpaper. At this point, that had to be in Sarah Jessica Parker's contract to come back for season two. It's just way too prominent for unknown reasons. Yeah. So the other big takeaway is, where is Steve? Yeah. We know from paparazzi photos that at some point he does come back this season because there were the shots of them on Coney Island. Yeah, eating hot dogs. It was Aiden, Carrie, and Steve. So we know he shot at least one scene, but Che has taken his place. (sighs) And then the other big takeaway is having- I love how you say this so begrudgingly. (laughs) What's with the tood? Aren't you like getting dick? Shouldn't you be happy? Wait, one more thing. Do you remember when we were shooting- we were shooting some branded thing and you were like, wow, you're so much easier to work with now that you're getting dick. (laughs) Actually, though, this is so great for me also. It's just great in general. It's great. We can go on little double dates now. How cute is that? I know, which we really haven't done. We did one. We went to Pache. That's true. Just Tat's been traveling a ton. I made a movie. The summer is ours, except Tat's leaving again for a month. Yeah. God, these goddamn schedules. Okay, anyway, having seen the teaser trailer and seeing the vibes going on between Brady and Lily in this poster, is the resolution to Lily's virginity storyline that she's going to lose her virginity to Brady? I hope not, because that's like borderline incest. Like when you grow up with someone like that, their moms could be each other's godparents. It's not as subversive as Josh and Cher getting together in Clueless, which is also technically okay. It's just weird. Yeah. This would make sense in what I assume is a small town, but you live in Manhattan. There are men everywhere. Well, I guess boys. There are boys everywhere. Right. She's living in Manhattan. Don't we all just lose our virginities at 19 to a man 12 years older than them? Oh, no. Did I reveal too much? (laughs) Not me, bitch. Also, I feel like we should talk about Carrie's look. Oh, in the ad, yes. So last year we did like a collaborative post with the Instagram account, The Cambino, run by Kim Russell, who's totally amazing. And she does these really great photoshops of celebrities in runway pieces, like shit that they like are not actually wearing, but should. It's like fashion fanfics. So we did one with her that was Carrie in this insane Scaparelli dress. Very similar to this, might I just say. Is Carrie turning into a giant carnation? Is that her final form? (laughs) I think it's a rose, but sure. It's also Christian Siriano. So I guess Scaparelli went loan for the, and just like that season two key art. There was an Entertainment Weekly article with Michael Patrick King where he discussed how 
the Peloton effect, as he calls it, has affected them. And that is one thing, which every brand they asked to loan to, they were like, how are you using it exactly? And he uses Gucci as an example of like, okay, but like, what kind of scene is this outfit going to be in? <laughs> is someone dying? That's really funny. And Michael Patrick King was like, I was on a Peloton today. I was fine. Whatever. Big was always going to die. In other, and just like that news, Candace Bergen is returning to the show as Enid Frick, Carrie's icy but lovable Vogue editor. Of which there's no way that she's still working at Vogue. Is she offering Carrie a Vogue.com column, or is Carrie bringing her on the pod to talk about their shared trauma of watching Lexi Featherston die? Why do you pitch things that are so much better and we know are not going to be in the show? Also, is she still with Wallace Shawn? If there was no reference to it in the first film, there's no way. I'd love it. But again, that would be fun. And there's no fun in this show. I don't care what Daddy MPK says. On a related note, I just watched Book Club again because I'm gearing up to watch the sequel. Also, Candace Bergen and Wallace Shawn. It is so crazy how closely those films adhere to the Sex and the City personality types. Like, Candace Bergen is such a Miranda. Like, she's literally a federal judge. Is Mary Steenburgen Charlotte? Charlotte? Yeah. Jane Fonda is Samantha, and Diane Keaton is Carrie. Yeah, that checks out. Also, I watched 80 for Brady. I've really been watching all of them lately. If those Bruce Willis films are called geezer teasers, what are these? I don't know. But Jane Fonda is also playing the Samantha in this movie, which is weird because it's so, like opposite of her own personality but i think she's just like the youngest looking thinnest octogenarian in hollywood so yeah. she just like gets cast as the hot one like no matter what yeah i mean diane keaton is pretty thin as well perhaps per- <laughs> and hot and hot you sound like such vapid cunts anyway oh people know that we're vapid cunts honestly it's astounding that in that new york times piece about our podcast it wasn't like they're vapid cunts but They are entertaining. When I read that, like the other New York Times piece about us came up about the event that we did with Cynthia Nixon, like the fundraiser that we did for her years ago. And I completely forgot that the writer said that we were overdressed for the event. Wait, what? Yes. I love how catty the New York Times style section is. Like, I actually live for it and I consider it to be an honor. But I just want to say that we were not overdressed. I wore a seafoam green suit that I have put into storage because Ivanka Trump later wore that suit. And then we (laughs) we wore her campaign shirts that you designed, right? Yeah. And I just wore like a whatever, like a Ghani dress that was like red and plaid whatever it was like not fancy and i wore borrowed sjp collection shoes (laughs) i love that they didn't give them to you they've never (laughs) given us shoes (laughs) on a related note i did go into the sjp collection store on Bleecker street which is where the mark jacobs special item store used to be right which we've discussed before and it's a beautiful shop Did anyone recognize you? No. You think the SJP collection shop girls give a shit? Not that they're like mean, but it's just like, you know. 
Heath employees give a shit. <laughs> so much so that I had to out my own relationship because I was like, well. <laughs> they did have the pumps that said, hello, lover. I put them on our Instagram. Yes, I remember those. I also love that they did it in sort of like a fake typewriter typeface. So it's vaguely like Carrie typing on her computer adjacent. Also, Gloria Steinem and Sam Smith will be in the second season of In Just Like That playing themselves. We knew about Sam Smith, but Gloria Steinem, that's news. Is she on Carrie's podcast? Like, is Carrie's podcast popping off? Like, could Gloria Steinem be a guest? Or is she going to be brought into some sort of Che Diaz charity plotline? I would love for Carrie to have an Emily Ratajkowski-esque podcast guest list, but somehow I doubt that. Although it would have been way funnier if it's like Gloria Steinem is going to be on the show, but as a different character. Gloria Steinem is now dating Aiden, and Carrie gets so jealous that she wants Aiden back. I love Gloria Steinem for a multitude of reasons, but one of those reasons is that she does random ass cameos and all sorts of shit. Like, remember how she was in the first Wives Club benefit yeah. scene, like having a deep and meaningful it with um, Bronson Pinchot, but she didn't actually have like a line. And then she was in the L word. She just like randomly showed up at like Jennifer Beale's dad's funeral. I love that Gloria Steinem is kind of the Donald Trump of feminist film cameos. Yeah, so true. So more highlights from this Michael Patrick King Entertainment Weekly interview. King is fascinated by it all and welcomes both the cheers and jeers from his And Just Like That audience. It means we didn't do the same thing, he says. If we had tried to do Sex and the City now without any of the changes we made, it wouldn't have been current in my mind. I think in my mind is like the, the key phrase here. <laughs> It wouldn't have been anything to argue about. There wouldn't have been a change to debate. I don't know if we necessarily like arguing about a TV show is like a necessary part of it being good. Again, it's a very 90s identity politics idea of what makes something good. All right. Well, I mean, certainly it's been great for our business. So I'm so hyped for season two, which is coming out on the 22nd, by the way, the 22nd of June, which is a Thursday, I believe, which is not the day it was on last year like wasn't it when was it on tuesday or wednesday i feel like it was yeah it's tough because on the west coast i just know that we were up at midnight watching the episodes and each episode itself felt like a hallucination so we would like wake up in the morning and watch it again and be like obviously i must have fallen asleep and dreamed that che finger banged miranda in carrie's <laughs> apartment and she had to pee herself <laughs> Oh, still so good. Well, he also says a lot of season two is an address the reaction to season one. In my thought process, oh, it's dark. Oh, really? That's necessary because the opposite of dark is light. So this season is light. And if that was winter, this is spring. Thank God. He doesn't mean a direct reaction to specific criticism. I didn't see one tweet and go, oh, my God, I've got to change everything. It's a zeitgeist feeling. It's like, no, no, no. It was the feeling that everyone gave me. <laughs> that the, that we as a culture just went no to the first season. We did say no, but we also said yes. You're more of a hater than me. Like, I'm like actually pretty into it. Yes. Uh, he also said that Carrie is not a homewrecker. He would never make her a homewrecker, which it's like, 
So that was Darren Starr's pitch for season three of Sex and the City, where Carrie is indeed a homewrecker. Yeah, I was about to say she is literally a homewrecker. She's wrecked at least one home that we know of. Aiden and Carrie are both single of their own volition. And you know how Carrie is single, but you will find out how Aiden became single. And it's like, oh God, now I really do think his wife died of COVID. I swear his wife died of COVID. To wrap up the Sex in the City stuff, I do want to mention that our good friend Dan Clay, who's a Carrie Bradshaw drag queen, who you may be following on Instagram, just published his first novel, which is called Becoming a Queen. So big congrats to Dan. We will link to the book in the show notes. Also, if you haven't yet read Patricia Field's memoir, Pat in the City, now would be a good time. We will be reading that and doing a very special Patreon episode about that soon. Also, congrats to our friend and our book editor, Kate Napolitano, who edited our book and who edited Pat's book. Oh, that's right. She's really carved out a niche for herself in the publishing industry. Well, Kate also was the editor that single-handedly worked with Pamela Anderson on her book. She's killing it. She just has to get to Kim Cattrall next. Get that memoir. Kate, if that's happening, just send a wink into our DMs. We've been a bit behind on this because Lauren has been filming her movie, but we have to discuss New York Magazine's It Girl issue, which was published a few weeks ago. It is essentially historical reporting about the various illustrious New York It Girls that have graced the city from the 60s to present. If this isn't Pulitzer-worthy journalism, I do not know what is. I've never seen you more excited about something. You were like, Lauren, it took me two hours to read. I have marked all the important things you need to read. I, By the way, I read it cover to cover. <laughs> okay, but I just had to highlight the key things. I love how my copy of the New York Magazine It Girl issue, it's like a marked up copy of like the power of now or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> my only gripe is that it's a magazine and not like a 10 volume set of encyclopedias. Because there's no way that a single issue can cover every single it girl in New York. This is correct. So I didn't realize that every year they do an issue called the yesteryear issue. And so this is their topic for this particular year of all the different it girls. Now, I know that this was hard for you to find because for like days, you're like, I I don't know where to get. It's not anywhere in LA. Well, I subscribe to New York Magazine, but it just takes like years for it to get to LA for some reason. But it finally came. In reading this, I realized the true extent of my obsession with it girls. Like, I feel like this is something that has been a big part of my life since, like, I was a tween or whatever. I feel like Kate Moss and Sofia Coppola were my real, like, gateway drug it girls. And ever since then, it's kind of just, like, spiraled out of control into, like, a full-blown obsession. Did this cure it for you? Because as we go on in the decades, I found that the stories of certain it girls just got darker and darker? Well, they've always been dark. I mean, Edie Sedgwick is kind of like the foundational it girl, and she had the darkest life. I felt like when I read Diane Brill or Lizzie Grubman, they're like, yeah, I moved on. I'm a homebody now. And then when it got to like Jamie King, it was like, I've never felt free, and I don't know if I ever will. And then Corey Kennedy's like, it took me eight years to get off drugs. It's like, holy shit. Those are both two it girls with drug problems. Alyssa Bennett's interview with James King was a real highlight of this issue. It was not fun. It was very depressing. James King or Jamie King, as she is now known, 
does not like being the face of heroin chic and feels as though she was exploited by the fashion industry. The fashion industry and then also the surreal nature of Bill Clinton, the president at the time, like posting your recently deceased boyfriend being like, this is the problem with America's youth. Yeah, I like that she pointed out that he was doing that while being a literal sexual predator. Also, Corey Kennedy, okay. This is a lesson to anyone that may be interviewed. Do not drink with the journalist. Because, okay, I'm going to go through my highlighted... Or wait, no, I think I did this in my copy, not yours. I bought two copies of this. (laughs) So wait, you bought one just for me and was like, this is the important stuff, Lauren. And then you have your own earmarked copy. Right. The journalist is basically like, okay, well, she's supposedly recovered from her, like alcohol and addiction issues but then the journalist literally says every drink that she drinks she takes a drag off my vape she starts smoking my cigarettes we have a bottle of natural wine we get another cocktail it's like ooh, you can't trust people i would hate that if i was her i mean the worst that's happened to us is being called overdressed at a cynthia nixon <laughs> campaign event by the new york <laughs> times okay we should probably get back to the origins of what makes an it girl because I love Tom Wolfe's definition of a guide to her own moment and an influence on it which I thought was a great descriptor because they are representative of the time that they live in but then also influence the people who are living in that time absolutely Um, I really liked Matthew Schneer's anchor essay which got really granular about this shit but he pointed out that quote unquote it requires not only some degree of fame but also the leavening of obscurity. An undeniable celebrity is not an it girl. Yep. Which is true, but there are certain celebrities that are former it girls, and I would put like Grace Jones and Madonna into that category. Like they're obviously better known as pop stars, fashion icons, etc., but that is their origin story. That's true, but I think there's something to being an it girl that is a deep cut, celebrity i mean they make this point and there is a reason why it kind of peters out in the in the 2010s is now there is a very known pipeline that if you are an it girl then you become kind of a girl boss entrepreneur yeah that was very much the post 2010s period for sure but i also feel like we should mention in case anyone is unaware the term it girl was first applied to the actress clara bow who was in a movie called it a silent film yes which was adapted from a novella of the same name one thing i didn't know is that the term it girl wasn't really widely used until this definitive biography of clara bow was published in the 90s and then it kind of entered the public lexicon a bit more for sure yeah i mean it it fell out of favor in the 40s 50s 60s and then started to to come back. I also feel like it should be noted that being a socialite and an it girl are not synonymous, although many socialites have become it girls. But I feel like being a socialite who becomes an it girl, it is usually because of their old money status has given them very good taste and proximity to insane opportunities. Like the story Marissa Berenson tells about running into Diana Vreeland, having not seen Diana Vreeland since she was a child with her grandmother, 
uh, Elsa Scaparelli. Thank you. Uh, and then Diana Vreeland was like, oh, we must f- photograph you for Vogue now. <laughs> well, obviously, if you saw a 16-year-old Marissa Berenson, you'd be like, surely we gotta, we gotta call Richard Avedon immediately. Can we discuss a few glaring oversights in this It Girl article? Okay, sure. Noe Misako? Okay, again, there's so many people that aren't mentioned in this issue. Like, it's especially the pre-2000s. Like, I think they do a good job of sort of going through most of those girls, but like anything from the 90s and before, they don't mention Candace. Candace isn't even mentioned once in the big essay that opens this issue, which I think is crazy because she obviously was an important it girl in the 90s, and she brought this sort of like fictionalized version of her it girl existence to the masses. And so much of, especially the 90s era it girls, just reminds you of the early seasons of Sex and the City, like the stories. Totally. Like Plum and Lucy Sykes talking about how Trump asked who their publicist was after they got a New York Times profile. I do associate Plum and Lucy Sykes with New York, despite the fact that they are British but there are some people on this list that are like not from New York like Corey Kennedy was an LA person I was living in New York during her heyday and I would just like look at the photos and be like oh that's what's going on in LA similarly I just associate Alexa Chung with London call me crazy yeah that was interesting about Corey Kennedy too because we're either the same exact age or there's a year apart But it was weird living in L.A., being that age, seeing someone going out, being like, oh, that is what's cool. I wish I could be her. Only to read this article and be like, oh, no, I'm I'm happy for my my sad and boring teenage existence. Yeah. Also, Corey Kennedy being friends with Bill Maher. Okay, that's terrifying. Well, as someone who still watches Bill Maher when I go over to my parents' house. Well, same. Only in that situation. But he often refers to having 30-something-year-old friends, and I'm always like, how? Who? And now it's like, oh, it's Corey Kennedy? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But back to what we were talking about earlier about being an it girl requiring a degree of obscurity, it reminded me about what Candace was saying when we interviewed her when she said that Sex in the City, the column, was written for a small group of people. Yeah. I feel like the same is true of this podcast, and I feel like the same is true of most of these it girls. Like, people like Jane Forth, Connie Fleming, like, they're not meant to be consumed by the masses. Like, you might know who they are if you don't live in New York and you were like, reading interview in the 70s or reading details in the 80s or something but these are people that don't really exist outside of like cultural hubs like new york and london and paris and stuff that's why to me my favorite it girl specifically new york it girl would be someone like debbie mazur who yes is this cult figure incredibly stylish but had all of this proximity to very famous people, most famously Madonna's best friend, her very first makeup artist. Proximity to Warhol, like Basquiat, everyone. Right, which in this article she talks about this legendary fridge she had, which Basquiat and Keith Haring painted on, as well as... uh, I think it was Kenny Scharf, her ex-boyfriend. As well, yeah, the graffiti artist. And then some asshole roommate painted over it in black. (laughs) So evil. Yeah, I think my favorite part about this issue were those kind of details. I highlighted some of my favorites, like the fact that Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol once went to a Paris disco with 15 rabbits. 
On more than one occasion, Halston asked Pat Cleveland to take Elizabeth Taylor to the bathroom to quote unquote clean her up. So she was presumably crying or drinking or both or something. And Elizabeth Taylor would recite The Owl and the Pussycat. Yeah. I love the detail that before Cookie Mueller would go out, she would snort a line of instant coffee. Uh, Yes, because she didn't do cocaine. Uh, I also like Elizabeth Saltzman talking about sneaking into the Met Gala in her mother's Carolina Herrera dress (laughs) and then seeing her own parents at the Met Gala. So good. I also learned that Kimora Lee Simmons was the one that told Manolo Blahnik to make those high heel tins which is makes sense. I felt particularly seen reading Diane von Furstenberg's Pete's where she talks about having dinner with her family, her kids, her mom, then getting ready and then driving her own car to Studio 54 where she would park in a parking garage right next to it. Iconic. She too was like, I didn't really see anyone doing drugs. She's like, I would dance and I'd be out of there within an hour. I also want to bring attention to what I consider to be the most important part of this magazine, which is a quote that Diane Brill gave when she was on Letterman in the 80s. And this is her tip for, I guess, being popular in the scene. She said, you go out every night. The best time to show up is the peak of the party. The peak of the party is always a mood. The question is not always when to come, but when to leave. And that time is once you've said hello to everyone. You exit discreetly, and then the party crashes. And they think, obviously, you're the one that made the party, because all of a sudden, when you leave, the party's down. That is genius. Oh, yeah, shit. Was it Cookie Mueller? Who was it that was talking about... Was it her and James St. James where they would go to clubs and they would just go the opposite? No, I think that was Lisa Edelstein. Yes, where they would go to the opposite ends of the club asking everyone for the other person. Yeah, like, have you seen Lisa? Yeah, have you seen James? And then when they would find each other, they would just turn around and be like, I found Lisa. So it seemed like they were somebody. And that's how everyone learned their names. So genius. Yeah, that's a really genius tip. I mean, if we're doing a triple birthday between Tat, you, and Paul, (laughs) perhaps we do Diane Brill's coffee-themed birthday party? Yes, which was at Danceteria and was apparently the best party that Andy Warhol ever went to because they put all these like cocktail waitresses in like coffee cup skirts and like they went around like pouring everyone coffee. Who were also dressed like Diane Brill, which was the other power move. Love. So of all of these girls, like who are your faves? I discussed Debbie Mazur. I mean, I just pulled from the decade that I was living in New York the Chernobyl sisters, but mostly because my friend Lauren Kramer, who we've talked about on the podcast, did the Bad News Stinger, is friends with them. And so it felt attainable and reachable, even though I never met them. Right. But they were just these legendary figures who lived at the Chelsea Hotel, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, people that still had apartments at the Chelsea Hotel. I feel like that's not even a thing anymore. I think there's, right, one singular person that held out during the renovations. Yeah, I agree about Debbie Mazar. I'm really sad that that Madonna biopic fell through because I would love to see Julia Fox play her. And that's another note that I have. Yeah. There needed to be more Julia Fox in this issue because she is the biggest it girl in New York at the moment. And she is very much cut from the same cloth as her predecessors. She's legitimately eccentric. She has attitude. Scrappy style. Yeah, and I can't wait to read her book. I love her. 
But to me, it's like I feel like Edie Sedgwick is just always the most major. She has the most impressive fashion sense. And if you haven't read Edie in American Biography by Eve Stein, that is like essential reading. Run, don't walk. I mean, I think another it girl that was so important in our time is Kate Lanfear, who just disappeared. Oh, right. She was, yeah, like a, she worked at Elle or something. That was like in the early days of like fashion blogs and stuff. I know for you, Jenny Shimizu. Well, obviously, love Jenny Shimizu. Also, should we be getting our cars fixed by Jenny Shimizu? <laughs> Evidently, she's a mechanic in LA. I know. Seriously, like, Jenny, where can we find you? Also, I love Tina Chow, and I love what Fran Leibovitz wrote about her. And she made the point that, like, yeah, she was an it girl, but she didn't really go out and wasn't crazy in the way that some of the other girls on this list did. I mean, obviously, like, she held court at Mr. Chow and her, like, vintage Fortuny dresses and stuff. But I thought that was really beautiful. I loved reading what John Waters wrote about Cookie Mueller. I think those were the best articles when someone was writing about someone else. Unfortunately, it was usually because they're deceased. You know what I also want to bring up? At the end of this issue, there is like the most incredible... I don't know if it's really even an infographic. How would you even describe this? It's basically a spread that chronicles all the eight girls from 2006 to 2023. And it's it's so spectacular to look at. But it reminded me, you know who I fucking love? Kat Marnell. I've always oh. loved Kat Marnell. Yes, you have. She's someone that could not exist without a Candace Bushnell or without a Courtney Love, who also had a New York it girl period before she, you know, became a rock star or whatever. That's true. It's now reminding me of those like two fashion magazine articles about Elizabeth Wurzel that we like are obsessed with. Well, yeah, she's also, yeah, in the Elizabeth Wurzel group. Elizabeth Wurzel was an it girl. There's not a lot of literary it girls in this. Like, I mean, like, where's like, I feel like Zadie Smith or someone like was an it girl. Yeah, I guess the closest you get is Plum Sykes because she technically wrote Chicklet. Chicklet, yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about the elephant in the room. Chloe Seveny. The ultimate it girl. I think she's my ultimate it girl, actually, because she's someone I've been fascinated by since I was a teenager. When I lived in New York, it was always like, you know, I'd see her on the street and be so excited to see what she was wearing. If I was at the same party as her, I would be like, oh my God, thank God I'm at the right party. We got to New York when she lived at that legendary apartment on 11th Street where it was her, Parker Posey, and James Eha all lived in the same building. Where's Parker Posey on this? Mm, I don't know if I would qualify her as an it girl because I feel like she was famous as an actress before. Whereas Chloe Seventy, like her origins were in the club scene. Yeah, I was thinking about in that famous New Yorker profile that's quoted in this article that the way that she is described does describe a lot of it girls, right? She just seems to exist in the moment and to not have any grand ambitions and yet to have so much style and so much charisma and so much influence. Well, she thought that was reductive. And some people think that about the term it girl, but I don't think it is because there's so many it girls that have like the most incredible careers. It's not just about partying. That's true. But I think why this issue peters out in the 2010s is because it girls become something different. It it becomes having, you know, VC backed ambitions when there is something lovely about just being 
Yeah. I did enjoy the the anecdote about Frances McDormand telling Chloe not to have a publicist or to ever do press. I kind of agree. Like, there's a level of mystique that I think is required to be taken seriously as an actress. But she also said, this I didn't know, that she turned down the Lily Sobieski role in Never Been Kissed, which, fair. And the Selma Blair role in Legally Blonde. That was a bad call. Both of those movies are great. None of us would have been like, oh my God, she's selling out by being in these incredible films that like we both still watch to this day. As someone who's recently made a film, it's hard to tell. It's hard <laughs> to tell which ones are going to be good. No, As my father says, no one sets out to make a bad movie. <laughs> but I do think that the roles that she's chosen over the years have been great. Like not doing things I think has aided her in a certain sense. I just don't think those are the commercial movies that you don't do. And I'm sure with 2020 hindsight, she would agree with you. Well, that's what she said. I think this is the perfect time to transition to the biggest fashion event that has happened since the Met Gala, which is Chloe's 70s archive sale, the sale of the century. Plus items from Mickey Boardman, Lynn Yeager, and Sally Singer's closet as well. All New York legends. Sally Singer, also a Chelsea Hotel person. But I feel like that's an important asterisk because I feel like um, their roles in the sale were, were diminished and mitigated when I was looking at TikTok. Well, yeah, according to TikTok. But the, these are all like New York legends. I could have fucked up Lynn Yeager's quarter of this sale. I will take whatever Simone Rocha cast off she has to give me. From the articles I read, within a couple hours, it was all of Lynn Yeager's closet was gone. She made $4,000 in the matter of hours, which I'm sure is more than she made in a year of writing for The Village Voice. Just kidding. Tragically, we could not attend the sale, but our good friend Gabriel Held, who's an incredible vintage dealer and stylist, did go and he agreed to be our roving correspondent. Our boots on the ground, as they say. Exactly. So let's just play the voice memo he sent to us. Good evening, America. Good evening, Tartinis and fuckettes alike. Gabriel Held here to share with you my experience of Chloe Sevigny's sale last weekend. So, as soon as I heard it was happening, I started planning back-channel corruption. But I was told by multiple sources that the line was taking a, quote, socialist approach, which I did not question. My plot, however, was to be dropped off at the door and make my way to the back of the line, hoping that somewhere during that journey I'd find somebody I could jump in with and thank for, quote-unquote, saving my spot which I did, but it took me about three blocks. So we all waited and gossiped for about an hour and a half, during which time I was only asked a handful of times what I was doing waiting in line, which gave me the perfect opportunity to tell people how humble I am. <laughs> at any rate, at which point, somebody frantically came and grabbed me, a guardian angel of sorts, saying they need to grab me and take my portrait inside the sale. They also grabbed a mother and daughter who were spending their Mother's Day online for this event and brought us all in. It was an elaborate ruse just to get us in, but I didn't know that. At any rate, got in. It was loud, crowded, hot, crackling with energy uh, like New York used to be. And basically, I scored from Chloe an original Slow and Steady Wins the Race quilted white canvas Chanel style bag in the $10 bin. Um, this kind of 50s cut Versace jeans couture, pastel mini dress with Medusa heads and Baroque accents, and a truly psychotic pair of kitten heel ankle boots with putrid avocado nylon shredded and glued to them, surely made for a shoot. In other words, 10 out of 10, would do again. The older I get, the more I realize I can't afford to not buy certain things. 
and it will surely happen again, so be ready. Thank God someone rescued him from that line because he's one of those New Yorkers that is so essential to the fabric of the city that I feel like those people should have like VIP privileges everywhere. Like Michael Musto or like that green lady. Especially at any sample sale. Also, I really appreciate the detail of the muslin slow and steady wins the race bag. Like that's one of those like you really had to be there kind of situations. Yeah, I felt like too many people were focused on her opening ceremony collection and like used tabbies. Well, I would have gone for the used tabbies. I don't need more of the opening ceremony. I already bought that like at the time that it happened. I feel that it's ironic that this sale was spurned from the fact that she decided to store some items in Los Angeles and then was like left with this archive and was like, well, I'm a mom. I'm 48. I'm not going to wear this stuff. What should I do with it? I'm not going to wear this like random ratty imitation of Christ slip dress anymore. That's Ooh. what I would have wanted. That shit. Yeah, I would have gone for the imitation of Christ stuff. Did anyone get imitation of Christ? Also, I really relate to what Gabriel said about being too old to not buy things. Yes. Because that that is something that you learn over time. Because sometimes you think oh, I shouldn't spend this much money on something. Like, this is a bad financial decision in the short term. But actually, it's a terrible decision in the long term because you might spend years of your life, decades potentially, pining over something. And then when you find it again, it's like eight times the price. My go-to rule, especially shopping vintage, is if it fits me perfectly, I gotta buy it. Yeah, I think that's a good one. So this sale went to Chloe being able to pay for years of storage, give a chunk to charity, and pay for more storage. And that's the storage unit I want. If I could imagine a life beyond the podcast, I would want to have our version of House of Style because I would dedicate one of the episodes to amazingly stylish women like Sarah Jessica Parker and Chloe Seveny and their archives or like Kate Moss's vintage collection. Also, Demi Moore is supposed to have a legendary vintage collection. Uh, yeah, that's actually my dream. One thing that I wish happened is I just want someone to take a photo of every item that Chloe Seveny sold. Like, I don't need to buy it. I just need to know what was there. Yeah. I just want like a slideshow of like every single thing. That could be a Rizzoli book. Does anyone have that? Apart from this sale, though, I think that the most major thing that's happened is the unveiling of Beyonce's Renaissance tour costumes, some of which were better than others. Shall we start with the good ones? Sure. I mean, the first one I want to talk about is the Mugler B costume, which seems like a Okay, Donald Glover, you want to make Swarm? Here's my response. <laughs> they referenced the Terry Mugler insect collection, which was like from the late 90s, and turned Beyonce into this very voluptuous bee. And I feel like Mugler in its current incarnation very rarely leans into the costumey and the campy side of the archive. So I think it was really satisfying to see him go there. And it was a satisfying combination of like archival reference and 
personality. Yeah, well, also the fact that she would have a sense of humor to reference the beehive and be so literal to dress up as a literal bee. Also, Lueve did a glittering cat suit with those sinister sexy hands from the Trompe L'Oeil collection. Didn't you get the shirt version of that? Like the mesh shirt? I have a mesh shirt, not of the the hands with the red nails, although it's funny because I have bright red nails, just because I thought that that was going to be one of those trendy items that would have been gone within a season. So now to see it a year later on Beyonce is funny. But yeah, I have one of the Trompe L'Oeil shirts. Why have I never seen you wear it? All right, next next time we go on a double date, bitch. Also, I have an important update. I did meet J-Dubs. What? It wasn't Chelsea. That, <laughs> what? <laughs> it wasn't that random because it was at a Lueve party. But it turns out that his boyfriend, Paul, who is a great artist, is a fan of the pod. So he was like, babe, this is like that lady that I listened to. I like screamed. What? <laughs> They're both lovely. But yeah, he's lovely. Um, love a British person. And he definitely turned Beyonce out in this look. Did you ask if they were excited about the pigeon bag being on in just like that? Yes, I did. And they are. Although they did buy them from them. They bought like several of them. Wow, just like us. I know, right? Any other costumes of note? I thought Karej did a good job with their look. I feel like it represented them as a brand and it worked for Beyonce. All right. There was a minor drama, though, because this designer named Victor Winesanto, who I've never heard of, but apparently like is stocked at like Dover Street and stuff made this gray satin sculptural piece that was obviously referencing like the Victor and Rolf bedtime story right. collection, yes, which is yes, yes. not only one of the greatest collections of all time, but also one of the greatest fashion shows of all time. And Victor and Rolf were clearly like pissed about this because they posted like multiple images of like their version, like the original version right. on their Instagram the same day that it came out. What do you think about this? That's obviously the reference. Victor and Rolf did it clearly more successfully. I would have maybe gone to them. I think it depends on the designer's intent. Like, was his goal to reference Victor and Rolf in a postmodern way? Or would he claim that he wasn't inspired by Victor and Rolf at all? Because I feel like that's a key distinction. Also, I feel like it's kind of on the stylist because for an artist of Beyonce's caliber you should just get actual Victor and Rolf. But if this was like Charlie XCX right. or like Caroline Polachek or, or something and they wanted to do this for like five seconds on stage, it's like, yeah, get someone to make that. It's a little confusing and I guess I would lean on the side that they didn't realize it referenced Victor and Rolf. If you're going to go to Mugler, who's going to reference a later Terry Mugler collection. It's, it's a bit weird. In other pop star news... <laughs> Yeah. A wife of the pod and celebrity stylist Tatiana Waterford rocked uh, Katy Perry's looks at the coronation. Holy shit. She looked incredible. She did. She wore a couple of different custom Vivian Westwood looks. And, you know, if there's one thing about Tat, she just loves serving the Commonwealth. You know, she can't <laughs> get enough of it. And she's such a royalist that she had a 10-minute conversation with Fergie and didn't know who the fuck she was. Oh, yeah. Sorry, guys. I tried to get her to come on to talk about this, but she didn't have time and also, like, wants to keep her job. I just was imagining her coming to us and being like, guys, Fergie looks so different <laughs> than you would expect she would. She I'm surprised she wasn't like, guys, I met Winona Judd. <laughs> As if Ted knows who Winona Judd Yeah, it's Judd true. Is. True. True. 
equally obscure because yeah I guess like if you weren't like fully conscious like she was born in the 90s but if you weren't like a fully conscious like thinking individual in the 90s like you wouldn't know who Fergie is I'm surprised that when Tat told you the story you didn't sit her down and make her watch Fergie's Oprah interview I know there's still time I might just do that also I love that she um got close enough to his majesty the king to have to like bow and I was like wait you're a chick like shouldn't you curtsy and she was like I'm in like a men's outfit like that would look ridiculous and I was like I love that you went with fashion instead of gender on this one it's all to serve the commonwealth (laughs) so Katie performed at this like coronation concert wearing this like giant gold Westwood really really spectacular dress and only as I was watching her sing firework did I realize I was like oh this song is literally about the 4th of July literally about our independence from Britain like this is kind of a serve oh it was secretly a rebellious act not that King Charles asked her to sing her most famous song I thought it was a little funny and Katie looked like a firework she did gown okay another important question yeah is Margot Robbie a scab yes or no All right, I will answer this question. Technically, no. So what Chelsea is referencing is that last week, Chanel had their cruise fashion show at Paramount Studios. It should be noted these shows are planned months and months in advance. However, the timing of the show did cause actors to call their agents and ask them, am I technically crossing a picket line going to this as the show fell within the first few days of the WGA strike? The short answer is no, and I love that sources told Deadline that Chanel and the WGA worked it out to make sure no protocols were violated. (laughs) Yes, they didn't cross the picket line, but they also literally did have to physically cross the picket line because there were protests. I heard I talked to a friend that went to the show and I was like, do you know people that didn't go to the show because of the strike and she was like yeah but only because they had been like striking there earlier that day and it would have been really awkward to then like come back like in a Chanel outfit and like walk past well I love this quote from a Chanel representative the Writers Guild of America's labor dispute against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers applies to unionized film and television productions not the physical property of the studio guests will enter the event through a neutral gate and are not in violation of the strike by being on property to attend this event. (laughs) Why is it so funny? You know, they probably shouldn't have gone because it was a really ugly cruise collection. It's not my favorite Chanel show either. I do question the decision to put every model in leg warmers, but I do think there were looks here and there. Of course. I love how I also wonder, I'm like, why don't we get invited to LA fashion (laughs) events? And it's like, maybe because we say shit like this on the podcast. Maybe that has something to do with it. Well, I think that Chanel is really good at doing like crazy novelty prints and I feel like there were some good ones in the middle section of this show and I fuck with all the just like obvious LA stuff it's like oh we put some like palm trees with like the Chanel logo and it's like yeah sure I'll eat that shit up I'm a simple person I think this warrants its own Patreon episode but like is it the blood oath with Chanel that's fucking up Margot Robbie style or is it the stylist I'm sorry I don't want to disparage Kate Young but I think that if you have access to the entire Chanel archive, there's not really an excuse. 
That said, generally, I love Kate Young. You know, she turns out Selena Gomez. Look at that bitch. And Kristen Stewart seems to be making it work. Yeah, because Kristen Stewart, thank God, has finally butched up. She's gone back to her panic room era vibes. It's a beautiful thing. Should I give a brief summary about what is going on with the WGA strike? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Okay. Every three years, the WGA negotiates with the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents all the major studios like Warner Brothers, Universal, CBS, Paramount, and more recently streamers like Netflix. Over the past few years, as content has reigned supreme, writers' wages have gone down, and if you adjust it for inflation... Most writers are actually not making a living wage. An example of this is Alex O'Keefe told The New Yorker that when he went to the WGA Awards this year, where the series he wrote on The Bear won Best Comedy, he had a negative bank account and bought his tie on credit. That's so fucking depressing. Oh, I'm about to top the depressingness. He is currently looking to apply to movie theaters as a survival job during the strike. So the WGA is also seeking a better residual model, especially when shows and films have a second life on a streamer like Netflix, who are purposely opaque about their analytics. So it's pretty much impossible to determine a residual payment. Well, this is also fucking up actors and stuff too, right? It's not just writers. I mean, not to be all 2020 election, but the very fate of the entertainment industry is at stake right now. And uh, SAG just told their members to authorize a strike they should we support them we are very pro-union on the every outfit pod well the other interesting thing that the wga wanted to discuss and the studios basically didn't respond to is right the last strike that happened was in 2007 the wga likes to push for future things so in 2007 it was the idea of how do you get payment from streamers at like the infancy of streamers the thing that they did this time that was a future-minded thing was about AI. And when studios didn't even want to negotiate, it signaled to the WGA they are already using AI to generate ideas. Oh, yeah, because they basically said what? Like, no, we will not not use AI, but we will give you a single meeting a year about like new technologies or something, which is a full on slap in the face. Yeah, it's very clear that they are not just intending to use AI in the future. They are using it right fucking now. Right. You saw how I met your father, right? (laughs) (laughs) So those who are striking on behalf of the wga are doing amazing work they're shutting down productions especially the east coast branch they've shut down the set of billions multiple days a keanu reeves film just got shut down also some show called evil and i think having a presence in front of the studios is important but something tells me that a well-worded sign is not going to change daddy zaslov's mind right but What are like these striking writers like not going to use like their writing skills to make like fun like signs that will then go viral, like amplify their message or whatever? Don't get me wrong. The studios know that they will have to play ball and negotiate eventually, but I think this is going to last a really long time. The last one in 2007 lasted 100 days. I think this might go six months. Like I think it could go well into the fall. And I don't think it's going to get settled until streamers start to feel the content pinch, right? Because networks instantly feel it because late night shows and that ad revenue has to go dark almost immediately. Right. But they already have stuff like queued up. 
they're doing the upfronts now. I forget if it was ABC or NBC, but they just presented an all reality fall schedule. That's how they're feeling. Also, I mean, right now they have no need <laughs> to negotiate because really what they're looking at is all these first look deals that they've done that they want to get off of their books. It happened in 2007, it'll happen now. Wait, what do you mean? Like, how does that work? Like, take Lena Waithe, for example. After Lena won an Emmy for Master of None, Amazon offered her a first look deal. And so it's basically, hey, you're a talented person. We don't want you to go anywhere. We're going to give you this money. And we want to see every project you do first. We have the right of first refusal. And when you do that for a dozen people, 20 people, that number starts to add up. So if they can clear out 10, 20 million, whatever it is, off of their balance sheets, they're going to do that. So this is going to get settled. It's pretty crazy to think that you could have every major branch on strike this summer. And I think that'll definitely hasten it. But it really is the very fate of the entertainment industry. Because if we're not able to wind this back now, you're never going to be able to, to be adequately paid for your work. AI just feels so sinister. Well, there was just that 60 Minutes piece where they discovered that the AI had taught itself a foreign language and they don't know how. Well, yeah, because it's smarter than us. On to some other fashion news. Please, I know a bunch of things have happened. Tell me. Um, Helmet Lang has hired AI to create their new collection. No. <laughs> yeah, when is that going to start <laughs> happening? Let's be honest, Balenciaga is going to be the first fashion <laughs> house that uses AI to design a collection. So Helmet Lang has hired Peter Doe as their new creative director. And I will admit that I was completely unaware of this man until this week. I asked Tad if she knew who he was. And she was like, yeah, obviously. It's like chic, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and I looked at his six last six collections and I agree he does make very appealing and wearable clothes and I'm interested to see where this goes it's hard to imagine Helmut Lang coming back though oh because it had such an overshadowing zeitgeisty moment in the 90s it did and they haven't really been able to recapture that like there was a very good collection that was guest designed by Shane Oliver but that was like years ago and I feel like they keep putting people in there that are kind of like don't have the edge that Helmet Lang has because when you take away the subversiveness, all that's left is like really extremely aggressively boring shit. Well, it just becomes more expensive theory. So yeah, looking forward to seeing what happens with him. People seem to feel some sort of way about this In that made me realize uh, I didn't know people cared about Peter Doe or Helmet Lang in that way. Oh, people really care about Helmet Lang. Like the vintage market for Helmet Lang is insane. It's one of those things that still like has a huge, huge cult following, but the powers that be have not like restored that to the actual brand. So there's nothing to buy from actual Helmet Lang. Like I was shocked to learn that like they've been releasing collections recently. Like it's still an existing brand. We just wouldn't know because it just never, you know, got on our radar or whatever. Yeah. And they're hoping with Peter Doe, it will be back on our radar. and We might want to purchase Helmet Lang things. In other news, Poochie has hired its first female creative director, this woman named Camille Maselli. Um, she's an accessory designer that's worked for Galliano, Marc Jacobs, Nicolas Gasquier. She just had her first fashion show for Pucci, I think, last week. Did you see it? Yeah, I think I think it was a, a decent debut. I mean, if any label should come back, it's definitely Pucci. I think it's time. Yeah, like no one's ever like really figured that shit out. 
like throughout my life, it's been like the most random, you know, it's like Christian Lacroix. And then it was like, who the fuck was it? Matthew Williamson. That made sense for the era. Where is Matthew Williamson? I think he pivoted to being more of like an interior Interior? designer. That makes sense. Um, So presumably he's making like butterfly print wallpaper or something. Anyway, I loved the opening look, obviously, which was this like sensational caftan like maybe the best caftan I've seen not designed by Valentino in years like truly incredible but I don't know the rest of the show apart from those ski looks at the end I was just kind of like who wants to buy an all-white mini dress from Poochie that would be like me going to Helmet Lang for a psychedelic caftan yeah you know it's like what person would want that it's okay to be fun and poppy It's all right. We need some of that. I did love the pool noodles. Did you see that? No. The models were carrying pool noodles that were like covered in poochie fabric. It was like totally genius. You might think it's some sort of like sculptural stole or something at first glance. But it's literally a pool noodle. It's literally just like a noodle. Is this what I thought at the Burberry show that it was a hot water bottle shaped purse and you were like, no, it's... No, that's literally a hot water bottle. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, these all white looks, especially the pant is kind of giving Bottega with like the woven texture. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't, I'm confused about the whole middle section of the show. But there's kind of no venerable label that hasn't been reimagine that we want to come back more than Poochie. And look, like, they haven't had, like, a designer designer in a minute. Like, there has been, like, some sort of in-house team that's been holding down the fort. We went into the store in Miami. That's what I was going to say. That was Poochie, right? Yeah. No, there's always, like, beautiful things at a Poochie store. There's never not. And I'm interested to see, like, the accessories also, since that's her background. Like, I don't really know, like, what their situation is with bags. I feel like in this show, we got more, like... Full noodles. Yeah, like, not, like, handbag handbags. Which is funny because if they just had done a pool noodle bag with poochie fabric I think it would sell very well yeah I need one of those poochie pool noodles in other Italian news the house of Walter Albini is relaunching and if you don't know who that is do not feel bad unless you really care about 70s fashion um that's a pretty obscure label Walter Albini is actually my favorite kind of fashion designer, which is a designer from the 70s that was really obsessed with the 20s and 30s. So akin to like a Biba, an Aussie Clark, like whoever did the costumes for Cabaret, like that kind of shit. We love to see it. Yeah. So I'm fucking pumped for this. They haven't announced who the creative director is going to be. Okay, so what I was seeing that it was Alessandro Michele, that's a rumor that came from TikTok. I mean, I think that's just like the most obvious like name that would come up just because A, like he's also into that same like deco by way of the 70s shit and he doesn't have a job. (laughs) So on one hand, it's like... that could be cool and definitely like would make sense from an aesthetic standpoint. Also, because it's such an obscure label, like I rarely even see vintage of it, you know, out. It's kind of a blank slate. So he could really do whatever he wants with it because no one has any preconceived notions or very few people have preconceived notions. But obviously it would be like a downgrade from Gucci 
one of the most famous brands. That's true, but it's also a downgrade from our fantasy that he would just start a home goods line in a small town in Italy. (laughs) So yeah, excited to see what happens with that. I see it in your eyes. You see your future wardrobe being outfitted between these two label relaunches. Um, Is it that time? Kardash, a holics anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. Our minds were blown this weekend (laughs) when... I love that this is the first thing on the dock after we haven't talked about the Kardashians in like a month, but this is the most important story. Kris Jenner is the mother of many things, but a a Papa John's Papadia (laughs) was not one I had on my bingo card. Don't you mean Papa John's ex-Cool Ranch Doritos Papadia influencer. Okay, we have to play the audio from this before we talk about it further. I know a thing or two about creating a brand, and I'm here to tell you that this new amazingly delicious idea for the Doritos Cool Ranch Papadia was all mine. I mean, who else would come up with such a genius idea? It came to me when I was running to a meeting with one of the girls. I reached over to my purse for a bag of Doritos Cool Ranch chips as I passed by a Papa John's. I immediately stopped the car, called my kids and said, your mom just came up with the best idea ever. And here we are. I mean, look at this thing. Take it from me. Lauren, (laughs) can you believe... She was driving by a Papa John's as she reached for her Cool Ranch Doritos. I love when people (laughs) accuse the Kardashians of acting or say that the show is completely scripted. No, it's not. You know how I know? Just watch them try to read something scripted. (laughs) And you know how I know it's scripted? Is because instead of just saying Kendall, she says one of the girls. Which is so clear that a copywriter at Papa John's yeah, had like, like Kim or Kylie or something. Insert daughter's name here. <laughs> it's like also, where did she get these cool ranch Doritos? Was she rifling through Chloe's pantry? Because I feel like she's the only person in this family that might have cool ranch Doritos. What the fuck is a Papadia? Obviously, it's from Papa John's. That's the Papa. But oh, that's quesadilla. that's not like a famous Italian food. Papadia. It's it's a quesadilla, but it's a Papa John's quesadilla. Without the two L's of a quesadilla. Oh my God, is that Lauren's new boyfriend, Paul, with Kris Jenner's Papa John's ex-Cool Ranch Doritos Papadilla? Oh my God, hi, Paul. Oh my God, thank you so much for bringing this in. Do you want to say hi? <laughs> no, just say hi. Just say hi. Um, Hello? So do you want to talk about Justin Thoreau's low-key iconic style or what? <laughs> or do you want to take a bite of this papadilla? No. Yeah, let's ser- serve it up. I just want to talk about the papadilla. Okay. All right, guys. We're tasting it. Wait, why do we have two bags of Cool Ranch Doritos like in addition to this? They're not like in the papadilla? It seems like on top they are, but I, I got the whole package, Chelsea. Mm, okay. Not bad. You know what? Because it has the dust on top is giving the Cool Ranch Dorito. And that's kind of like the key part of it, right? Oh, there's a sauce. Hold on. Dip. What Paul. do you think, Paul? Yeah, Paul, thoughts? Um, I, it, yeah, I'd eat it again. I would order this. <laughs> but it's only available for a limited time. Bullshit. I mean, that's what they said about Doritos Locos. Is that your fave? It's a spiritual predecessor to the Papadilla. Mm. 
Okay, so what do we think this is? Because it's essentially a calzone, but they're giving it a name like it's a quesadilla. I think that if they spelled it like quesadilla, it would be far too confusing for people. So it's now spelled like papadia. Yeah, I didn't even know how to pronounce it when I first saw like Chris Jenner's Instagram caption. By the way, there's no way she would have eaten this. If if this was Chloe or Kylie hawking this, mm-hmm. that would make sense. How's the sauce? Tangy. Is that supposed to represent Cool Ranch? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ranch. It's ranch with something special. The Doritos. Okay, just start, stop eating into the mic. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for being such a good boyfriend to Lauren. I, I can eat the rest of this, right? Yeah. I, actually, yeah. <laughs> but leave <laughs> the cheesy time. bread for us. I also got a cookie pie because I felt weird just ordering this $10 meal. <laughs> What, you're like, I have to spend $100 on <laughs> at Papa John at like 11 a.m.? Well, we may have found the Papadilla delicious. This co-branding did not feel as legitimate to some people as I picked out some choice comments <laughs> from this post on Chris Jenner's Instagram. Okay, amazing. Please read them. Chris, respectfully, I've seen hostage videos more convincing than this. <laughs> but actually. Chris, blink twice if you need money. That's the other thing is we know that for Kylie and Kim, it's 250000 up to a million to do a post. How much did they pay Chris? And why Chris specifically? Did they try to go through the other girls and the budget they had got them Chris? At least you didn't get them Scott. This would make more sense if it was Scott's. <sighs> All right. Um, do we want to discuss the full trailer that dropped? Sure. This excited me. This is genius, like, editing. Like, whoever cut this shit, chef's kiss. It's true. It it almost did not make me annoyed that this is going to take place so far in the past. Right. The trailer starts with Blonde Kim, post-Pete breakup, crying in spite of her Botox, which I always love to see. We've got Chloe's cancer scare and Chloe's new nose. I'm not sure what's going on with Chloe's face. We get a lot of references to Kanye without literally saying Kanye's name. Like, Kendall's like, I feel so bad. Like, I don't know how Kim, like, deals with, like, her ex-husband or whatever. We see Kim crying. Trying to cry through that Botox, but that Botox isn't letting up. Oh, this is the most exciting thing for me personally, which is the apparent feud between Courtney and Kim over Dolce & Gabbana. Courtney is heard in voiceover saying, Kim used my wedding as a business opportunity. I love how Kendall and Kylie go, I see both sides of this. <laughs> so to refresh people, Courtney's wedding was basically a Dolce & Gabbana brand activation. And then maybe like six months later, the Chow Kim collection came out, which was like Kim Kardashian's Dolce show. We talked about it on the pod. Yeah, where she went through like archival looks. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Kim did like initially bring this up with Dolce and or Gabbana during Courtney's wedding. And as we know, those are some picky Italians. And then Courtney says like, it's just who she is. Like she always does this shit. Basically, like she always steals my thunder. I'm getting vibes that I'm going to feel the same way that I did during that season of Keeping Up with the Kardashians when Courtney kept being like, I don't want to do this show anymore. And again, my annoyance is the lack of deference from Courtney of like, especially during that fight of like, hey, you have the opportunity to never work again because of what Kim brought to you with the reality show. 
Like, you were able to have a Dolce & Gabbana-sponsored wedding yes. because you're famous from the show. Absolutely. Because your sister made a sex tape. Yes. And I will absolutely give it to Courtney that those first five years of the Kardashians... She carried that shit. Yeah, with her drama with Scott. But ultimately, there's going to be no there there. But I'm, I'm here for any kind of feud of some sort. Well, also, now Kylie is doing Dolce & Gabbana ads. Like, I just saw some, like, eyewear campaign with Kylie recently. I would love, I would love different feuds among the family. I would love a Courtney-Kylie feud. That would be fun. Although I am just so like happy that they brought this particular feud to the show, which none of us knew about. Like there's tons of drama that we already know about. They didn't need to get into this, but they did. So thank God. In other news, Kylie is in a pretty fierce Gautier campaign. Yeah, I'm really into this raver Kylie with disco brows. And she's a logical choice because those famous Gautier mesh pieces, like they actually fit the bodies of Kardashian and Kardashian adjacent people. Right? Oh yeah, just uh, one thing to go back to on the trailer. When Kylie goes, we need to have a conversation about the beauty standards we're setting. Oh fuck, sorry. I did not mean to skip over that. That's kind of like the main thing. The best thing about that is that when she's saying that, She's in the most incredible archival come to Garçon like pink shirt with those puffy hands on it from whatever that iconic collection is. It's so good. Because yeah, and then she goes on to say like, I wouldn't want my daughter to do the shit that I've done to my body and I wish I hadn't done anything. That's not true. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I understand the sentiment. I feel like she's like, I wish I didn't do as much as I did, but she still would have gotten fillers. Because I think we're maybe 10 years away from the biggest commodity in the world is not having plastic surgery. It's only going to take one like like the equivalent of a Brooke Shields or an Emrata or something like one person that's like the new face that doesn't look like this and it's going to change everything. There's this book that Paul just read that I want to read called Aesthetica. Sorry, I'm still eating Papa John's. <laughs> not the cheesy bread, not the Papadilla. It's called Aesthetica by Ali Robottom that basically deals with this. It, it takes place in the near future of 2030 of an influencer who goes through a procedure, I believe called Aesthetica, where you... Your face looks like your old face. You get everything dissolved. That's going to be such a thing. But uh, that said, Kylie looking great in these ads. So good for her. And then they were all at a Lakers game. Have you seen the videos of Kendall and Bad Bunny? I haven't seen videos. I've seen photos. Okay. There's a whole TikTok theory. It's kind of a men's rights activist theory about the lean, where it's like, if you see a photo of a guy and a girl, and the guy is like leaning into the girl, it's like the power dynamics off. But this is literally that. Like, I saw multiple videos from different points of the game where she is so truly does not want to be around him. It's as if she didn't realize she was going to be photographed with him at the event. Like, her just walking way ahead of him. At one point, she just walks away and starts talking to someone else when he's telling her a story. It's quite embarrassing. Also, we have Kim in the I Love Nerds shirt. Does she love nerds? Because I think Kanye is a bit of a nerd. Especially 2009 era Kanye, yes. Yeah, like he had nerd vibes, but he's also like not nerdy in other respects. Pete Davidson, not a nerd. Pete Davidson, like if you went to elementary school with him, like he wouldn't be like the 
popular kid, but he would be like the most popular of the alternative kids. I see that. Well, but also Chelsea, like Kim is just in her vintage shirt era. And like people we went to high school with who wore vintage shirts, they have no allegiance to the shirt that they wear. Like, do I think that she's a huge Bjork fan when she wore the Bjork shirt? No. Okay, but that looked amazing. Yes. Yeah, she really, really is into vintage t-shirts. She's like buying like everything at what comes around goes around. I mean, her stylist is, but yeah. So one thing we thought we would get from the Kardashian trailer was a potential Tristan Thompson redemption arc. And we felt justified in that belief because at this Lakers game, Kim was seen with North holding an I heart Tristan Thompson sign. But comments by Celeb posted a comment that Chloe had posted in reference to this. Kim supporting Tristan at the Lakers game. What is going on? Allegedly, he's back with Coco. This must come from Dumois. Anyway, Khloe Kardashian commented, stop pushing this narrative. It's tiring. But I suppose you guys will continue the narrative you want regardless of what I say. So what's the point? It's exhausting, but I learned people will only understand to the level of their own perception. Most are stuck at believing the lies because it's the narrative they want to fuel. Have fun. Some things are just as simple as they seem. A family member supporting another family member, especially during a difficult time in life. Example, just how I support Scott and will forever support him. He's my brother. It's just not on an NBA stage. Sad new world. If there's no photos, people think it really didn't happen. But yes, I see Scott often. Some things really just are as they are. So she's definitely back with Tristan. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's back with Tristan for sure. <laughs> too, long, <laughs> too long of an explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. We just haven't gotten to it yet. We've gotten to the end of the podcast. You guys can't see, but Chelsea is so lovingly looking at this cheesy bread. No, no. I, I mean, I, I never stopped eating it. I'm done now. I'm full. It came with the papadilla, the tortilla, and then this starry beverage, which I guess is a Gen Z version of Sprite. Is it the same as Sprite? Yes, it is. That's so weird. What? So Gen Z just like refuses to buy Sprite or 7-Up or something? I guess. They needed to be rebranded. This has been a fun app. So glad you found love. Glad we finally got to talk about the it girl issue. We'll be back next week. Yeah. See you guys then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>